Well, the Gospel of John is one of those books that is full of absolutely wonderful imagery. If you read any of John's works, whether the Gospel of John, his letters, or the book of Revelation, you see that he has a way with words. He has a way to uh, use metaphors or similes and different figurative expressions that can capture, in a few words, uh, things that commentators will spend paragraphs trying to explain what it is he means. But even if we're using metaphors or simile or, or figures of speech, we shouldn't think that means that there isn't truth located in those uh, figures of speech, as it were. All of those things communicate literal truths, but they do so in an evocative way to engage your heart as well as your mind. And all throughout of the Gospel of John, and really his other letters too, is this theme of light and darkness. And really it's a theme that goes throughout all of Scripture, especially when it comes to the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah and his fulfillment. Jesus says of himself that I am the light of the world. What a wonderful statement that captures so much in one phrase. The prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 speaks of a people who dwelt in a deep darkness. That they are surrounded and even oppressed by that darkness. And how this coming of the Messiah will be this great light appearing to those who are trapped in darkness. If you have a minute uh, this week, I strongly encourage you to uh, find Ardell's uh, article in Christ Overall on the birth of Christ. And how this imagery in John 1 is picked up and developed far better than I will do here uh, this morning. But this light, it points back to creation and forward to a, a new creation. And this is really where the Gospel of John opens. In the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The lights around your house, the lights on your Christmas trees, the candles we light during Advent, and we, we dim the lights, the candlelight services around Christmas, they all pick up this imagery in the Bible, light and darkness, surrounding the birth of the Messiah. And especially here in Minnesota, as the sun sets earlier and earlier, and darkness sets in around 4.30 or whatever it is now, we see the light all throughout our neighborhoods, and it's preaching one truth to us, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And so the stage is set that the birth of Christ brings with it light. J. Gresham Machen, in his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism, and liberalism here is not a political term, it's a theological term describing different camps of theology, but he refers to how they are really two different, liberal Christianity and, and Orthodox Christianity are really two different religions because they believe two different separate things. Right, they use the same words, but they fill those words with different definitions. In the opening of his book, he writes this, Light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but light is always beneficial in the end. Light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. If you've ever been in a dark room for a while and somebody walks in and flips on the lights, you shield your eyes because it, it hurts at first. Because you're used to the darkness. And your eyes begin to like the darkness, as it were, and it comes as a shock when light enters the equation. And so you may be initially upset. Why did you turn those lights on? 
But when you turn the lights on in a room, it brings clarity to the room, to your context. You can see the furniture so you don't run into it. It's beneficial in the end. And here in the Gospel of John, light and darkness are set as a contrast to one another. They're set against one another. There's this light shining in the darkness. And this is at the heart of the message of Christmas. is that God has sent the one who is the light of humanity into a world trapped in darkness. In other words, light is invading this world. Christmas is war. It is a war between the light and the dark. And as much as the angels declare... Uh, to the shepherds, that peace on earth and goodwill towards men, and that is true, but they speak of a peace that is coming, and that is a peace that will come between mankind and God. And that only comes through the light invading and defeating the darkness. And so on the one hand, Christmas is a time of peace, but it is also a time of conflict between good and evil. And that may be hard for us to hear on some levels because many in our world today don't believe in good and evil in any meaningful way because they reject their being an ultimate standard. And to them, there is no light and darkness in that sense. There is no right or wrong. Until, of course, you cross one of their lines and you do something they don't like until you act politically incorrect and then you're an evil who must be canceled and driven out of polite society. And in a surprise to no one who's paying attention, those who often preach tolerance become the most intolerant people around. Those who claim to be relativists have become the worst kind of religious fundamentalists that you've ever seen. You either agree with me or go live in the desert. If you really believe that right and wrong is only about power, then you will do whatever you can when you have the power. And that is what we, what we are going to examine today, though, is this idea of the birth of Christ as light. What does this mean? Why is this so important? How is the light invading the darkness? And how does it show us, something I say to you all the time, that you live in an inherently moral universe? So first we need to dive into what exactly is John getting at when he says, or uses this imagery, as Christ as the light in the world as being in darkness. Now, there are many options we could go with here because imagery here of light versus darkness is not unique to Christianity. Lots of different religions and and worldviews and belief systems use that kind of imagery. You have the idea throughout many pagan religions of two dueling forces, sometimes pictured as light and darkness. Or you have things like the yin and the yang. There are two different things that are at constant struggle with one another. And the most popular level you could think of the the example of Star Wars. In Star Wars, there is a one force that runs throughout the entire universe, but it's divided into two halves, the light and the dark. The light side of the force and the dark side of the force. And those two sides are locked in an eternal battle where both really do need one another. If you listen carefully to how they explain it in the movies, they say as much. The two sides really do need one another. Now, This, of course, is just uh, sci-fi riffing off of the Buddhist worldview. And if you go into, what's his name, George Lucas, and look into why he made this world as he did, it was intentionally a Buddhist kind of understanding of the world. But such a moral framework flattens out true morality. The light and the dark are necessary for each other. Another option you have in biblical times, the imagery of light versus the darkness, 
in what we would call Greek dualism, right? which is in essence that what Buddhism does as well, that there really is no difference uh, between the two. They'll do, they're dualistic in their nature, but this is really how the universe is. There is a light side and a dark side. That's just the way it is. And that leads to religions that are really amoral, that there is no religious code. And if you read much of the Greek philosophers, they came up with different camps because some of them wanted to find a way to find a religious code. They wanted to find a way to, to have a foundation. But for many of these pagan religions, salvation comes then through enlightenment as you come to recognize that both the light and the dark are needed and cannot really be escaped. Nancy Piercy in her book Finding Truth says this, These religions teach that it is a mistake to draw any moral distinctions. Everything merges into the one. The end result, however, is that you cannot distinguish between good from evil, which means you have no basis for fighting against evil. And she cites one of these works where they say this, Everything that exists is good, death as well as life, sin as well as holiness, wisdom as well as folly. This kind of dualism, ironically, boils down into one. It, it reckons everything down into oneness. And this is one of the reasons why New Age religion is growing in our society. People are no less spiritual today. They still believe in certain spiritual things, but Eastern re religions are ascending because they are, one, ultimately relativistic, and two, they reckon are, are the same as Darwinism. Because Darwinism reduces everything to one matter. These Eastern religions reduce everything to one. They actually fit really well together. Everything's relative. None of it really matters. And I know what some of you are thinking. Right? In Star Wars, it's very clear who the good guys are. It, it is. You're right. It's a story that's constantly contradicting itself. It's a really bad story if you don't know who the good guys are. No one will go see that movie. But when you have characters saying things Things like, only the bad guys deal in absolutes, which is an absolute statement. You can't expect too much from Hollywood writers. Right? Thinking is hard sometimes. Thinking clearly is hard. They are stuck in God's world, so they have to try to escape it some way, but they can't really. But this duality, this non-morality, is not what John is getting at. It is not a playoff of what the Greeks and the Romans were doing. If you know anything about the Greek and the Roman gods, they were absolutely terrible and wretched individuals. If you read any of the mythology around how those gods acted, they were wicked, selfish, downright evil, and just destroyed and deceived men for their own pleasure and entertainment all the time. These were the evil gods of Rome. Read their stories, you can find it uh, for yourself. And if you notice anything about Greek and Roman culture, they were just as wicked as their gods were. Because you become more like what you worship. If you worship wicked gods, you will become more like those gods. Christianity says something fundamentally different. And it is this. God is the light. God the Son is the light. And the darkness is utterly in conflict and contrary to him. And this idea of God being the light carries with it the ideas of creation, revelation. When you turn on light, you can see things. And of, co of course, holiness or morality, good. The biblical view of the world is that there is an eternal, unchanging standard of right and wrong. There is a distinction between light and darkness. They are not two parts of a whole. 
And that light flows from God, comes through the sun, and is wholly opposed to the darkness. And these two forces will not forever exist. The light wins. The darkness loses. This is what John means by his light and dark imagery. Light and goodness flow from God, and Christ is that true revelation of the goodness of God, for he is eternally God in the flesh. So the light, who is Jesus Christ, who is the imagery of revelation in the new creation and holiness, has come into the world. But there is a purpose to God's sending him as light into the world. And we get this purpose in John chapter 3. If you just move three verses past John 3.16, you pick it up in verse 19, John picks up this theme of light and darkness again. And we read this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is the imagery here of light and darkness? It's good, wicked deeds are darkness, and good deeds are truth are the light. Man in his sinfulness hates the light and loves the darkness. And so there's this sense here that those who do not follow God through Christ love the darkness even though they may hate parts of the darkness, ultimately they hate the light more and they love the darkness. To rip on a, another a fantasy story, all of us are like little golems, treasuring the very thing that is killing us and destroying us. We love the darkness even though it will kill us. If you're not familiar with Lord of the Rings, I might still be able to be your friend. <laughs> but you should get familiar with it. Tolkien had an astute way of understanding the condition of man and putting it into fantastic creatures that don't really exist. This passage shows us that dual purpose of the light coming into the world. Two purposes. First, it is a judgment on the darkness of this world and those who love it. God sends the light, his son in, to expose the reality and the ugliness and the darkness of evil. When people reject the light, it is not because they are neutral to it. It is not because they are not convinced by the light. It is because they hate the light. And they love their darkness. They love their wicked deeds. The fight at the center of the universe and at the center of every human heart is that we, even as believers, still have parts of us that love the darkness more than the light. God made this universe good. God made humanity good in his own image. But we have chosen ourselves and we have chosen the prince of darkness as we choose sin. And that thing, that the prince of darkness and our sin, hate us and seek to destroy us, to put us in shackles. And for some reason, we love it over the light. Those who love darkness then are offended and hate the light. And so God sends the light to expose and to condemn the darkness. And you note, if you read the surrounding context, this is not some new judgment. The world is already condemned. 
already stands condemned before Jesus arrives, but it reveals what is already true. The light shows us what our sin really is, that it is a cancer that is destroying us, and it is a front to God. In every way, our sin is evil, wretched, vile, and disgusting. There is nothing that will justify it. Second, the light comes as an act of salvation to deliver some from the darkness. Not everyone who sits in the darkness and then sees the light shuns it. Some see the light for what it really is. Goodness, holiness, life, salvation. The light is our life. It is our hope. It is the offer of God to redeem and restore creation. And so John mentions the good deeds of those who receive the light. But we have to note here that the stress is not that you and I are doing good deeds and then therefore the light will shine on you. It's that because the light has shone on you that God has done something in you that you will then do good deeds. God must act first. This is all grace. All this light in this world that we see and experience flow from the source of the light who is God. And so we have this reality. The light comes like a two-edged sword. One side cutting in judgment and the other side cutting in salvation. And the world hates the light because it loves its own sin and its own darkness. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking into a situation where you can, you can just feel the spiritual darkness. You can feel the, the oppressive weight of what is going on. The darkness presses in. You can just, it, it kind of hates even your own presence there. I've had that experience before, and anybody who knows me knows I'm no super spiritual mystic person. But this world is both spiritual and physical, and those realities are intertwined more than we want to recognize. And this is the world that Christ has come into and where the light shines. The story of Christ is that the light shines versus the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so I've said, I said to you at the beginning of the message, and I say to you regularly, that we live in what is described as a moral universe. All right? In today's world, that's fighting words. We live in a moral universe. For many, good and evil is no different than trying to say, I like this and I don't like that. Something's good if I like it. Something's evil if I don't like it. Moreover, for much of the Western world, they believe that they inhabit a primarily psychological world. Man is not viewed primarily as a moral creature called to live a certain way, but rather he is a psychological creature where internal well-being and feeling good is the primary good of the world. In other words, your feelings reign supreme. Your feelings determine what is good, what is right, and what is true. I should not need to convince you of that. The signs are everywhere. But in this way, oppression, which is used in Scripture regularly, the term, and is used by good-thinking individuals in world history again and again, is used as external acts. We used to talk about oppression as if I stole your money, I took away your freedom. Because we thought about the world in moral categories. But now, oppression has been redefined into psychological terms. 
Oppression is now if you make me feel something I don't like. It's violent speech that makes me have to question my own views. If you cause me to feel unaccepted, then you are oppressing or abusing me. That's the psychological worldview. It's not actual actions that are wrong, it's thoughts. It's things that make me uncomfortable. What do we do in such a world? Where do we look for a standard for right and wrong? That is the question, I think, that haunts us as a people. If you look to the ancient world and you see how they treated one another, you would be right to look at something like uh, two-thirds of the Roman world were slaves or are not really free men. And you would look at that and look at how they murdered and treated their slaves and you would be morally repulsed. You would be right to do so. If you look to the 1800s of America and how we treated our slaves, and you would be morally repulsed by that. You would be right to be morally repulsed by that. But why? When somebody wrongs you, when somebody steals from you, and you are morally repulsed by it, but when you do the same thing, you excuse it. Why? Why do we think like that? Where does this moral indignation come from? What is the source of right and wrong? Well, the options are very few, actually, for where we can base our moral compass upon. One solution you can see more and more today is that science and or human reason, divorced from anything else, will provide for you the standards of right and wrong. And the last hundred years or so have displayed uh, the spectacular and terrible failure of such thinking. Karl Marx argued that his view of political theory was the one true scientific view of how we should do politics. hundred million people dead later, claiming to be scientific. Or Nazism's pursuit of the perfect race based on some demented thinking of, of evolution and Darwinistic breeding, the perfect race. Nonetheless, still today, you'll see studies from time to time where the headlines will read that science has found out the truth about human morality. We have found the foundation for human morality. And like so many other titles and headlines in today's world, it's just clickbait. If you actually read the studies, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just a way for these scientists to generate funding. Look at how great our research is. Give us more money so we can do more of this great research. Uh, In the book, Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality, James Hunter and Paul Nedlinsky recount the scientific search for morality. Now this book... It was published by Yale University Press, not a Christian company. And as far as I can tell from reading the book, neither one of these individuals are Christians. Yet in the book, they interact with decades of scientific research that has claimed, now we know what is right and wrong. Now we have a foundation. And they say, yeah, none of that holds up whatsoever. Take a few quotes from the book. This is the author's writing. Since the existence of any real ethical basis in reality has been denied, there is no ethically relevant basis on which Green and other practitioners of the new moral science can argue that their view in any sense is objectively better than the views of ISIS or a Russian oligarch. It seems their position must in the end come down to mere preference. What they're saying is we we looked at these studies and basically since they say there's no foundation, All you're really saying is is that I like this. And in the end, ISIS says they like the way they're doing things. There's no actual moral difference between the two. Science cannot tell us what is right and what is wrong. They write elsewhere. 
There is the challenge of definition when trying to use science to find morality. There is a challenge of definition, of providing a clear and concise definition of morality that is, one, adequate to lived experience, and two, that is scientifically measurable. In other words, you, you can measure inches, you can measure pounds, you can measure ounces, you can do all those things, but you can't measure morality. How do you do that without a standard? And that's beyond the scope of science. And this leads to this moment of, of honesty from them. Should we look to, the, to religion for such a unified, socially binding foundation? That would seem reasonable. Of course, this is out of the question. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Must be proved by science. After our long journey through the centuries, we cannot escape the conclusion that science fails as well. So they say, look, science can't give us this foundation. Yeah, but we can't look to God either. And nonetheless, they still feel that pull that we need to have some way to define what is right, what is wrong. Some way to explain our basic lived experience that when you are wronged, you are not a relativist. And you know it. So where do we go then for a foundation of right and wrong? Well, we're left with one other option besides God. We can either base our standard of right and wrong on us. Either as groups or as individuals. Either the group gets to decide what is right and wrong or the individual does. There is no morality, just social and personal preferences. And this is really what is at the heart of leftism or moral relativism or postmodernism, whatever you want to call it. That morality is ultimately a preference. Cultural preferences dominate our cultural preferences are then ways that people use power to oppress those who disagree with them. Right? So as a people group, we have traditionally believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. But when the majority of people agreed upon that, they were oppressing anyone who disagreed with them. Does this sound familiar? This should sound really familiar to you. And so what we have witnessed lately is that as moral revolutionaries have moved from the minority to a majority in the culture, they start acting like universalists. This is not, as some suggest, a departure from relativism, but it's fulfillment. If you believe that morality is only when society forces its views on others, then when you have the power in society, you will use that to make others believe what you want them to believe. When you have the power, you will do whatever seems best to you or else. Thus, cancel culture. Thus, crazy transgender absurdities. Thus, free speech is viewed as an evil and a threat that must be stopped. Because they believe that now that they have the power, that they can do whatever they want with it. And brothers and sisters, that should terrify you. If morality is a mere exercise of power, and there's no cap on the people who have the power, how they use it. We are really no different than survival of the fittest Darwinists. And we have seen how that has played out in world history. The strong will abuse the weak. And this is what we are left with without God. Anything goes. The powerful determine what is right. This was Rome's basic philosophy. And that is why it was a bloody, ugly dystopia that was wretched for most people to live in. And so the fact that we live in a moral universe, that you feel anger rise up in you when you are wronged or when someone you loved is wrong, 
tells you, it screams to you in your heart and your mind that God exists. You're not just socially conditioned to believe that that is wrong. But God has placed it in your heart. There is a moral code that testifies against us. And we feel it deep in our bones no matter how much we try to explain it away. There is a universal standard because there is a God. And that standard is not over him, but that standard is him. It is his character. He is the light and the darkness cannot overcome him. And this leads us back to Christmas. Sorry for that rabbit trail. But to the story of the incarnation. The story of the word who took upon flesh, who is the light, has entered into the darkness. And I love our Christmas hymns, and many of our Christmas hymns pick up different aspects of the truth about Christmas. But songs like uh, Silent Night, they pick up real themes about Christmas. And I love singing it. But that song only picks up a part of Christmas. It ignores the cosmic war that Christmas was and Christmas is. The imagery of the war between light and darkness pervade the imagery of Christmas in Scripture. And this was not just some passive conflict, but life and death. And so the light comes on a rescue mission to invade a fallen world trapped in darkness and in rebellion. A few weeks ago, I mentioned to you Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 paints a picture of this. There's this great serpent who is Satan. And he's sitting there because he's been cast out of heaven, waiting for the baby to be born so that he can eat the baby. That baby's Jesus. That's the picture of Christmas that Revelation 12 gets us, or gives us. And if you read your Gospels, you know that the dragon used King Herod in his jealousy of the rightful king of the Jews being born. Under the influence of the serpent, he did one of the darkest things you could do. He murders all the children, all the male children of Bethlehem, two years and younger, to serve the darkness and the dragon. That's Christmas. Satan hates children. Satan is always trying to kill children, whether it be Baal or Moloch or Herod or Egypt or Planned Parenthood. The serpent's teeth are dripping with the bloods of baby or the blood of babies. That's darkness. And into that world, Christ is born as the light of the world. Into that world, he shines bright. He casts out darkness. He judges evil and he converts sinners. And so at Christmas, we celebrate the holiness of God bursting into our darkness. And so we sing during Christmas. We celebrate Christmas in lean years and in good years. In good times and in dark times. We celebrate the coming of the light into a world that hates the light and loves the darkness. Because Christmas is war. So Christmas remains that divine battle. Uh, In a moment here, we're going to sing a song called I Heard the Bells on Christmas um, Morning or Christmas Day. It's been turned into a movie, I guess, this year. I haven't seen it, so I can't tell you if it's any good. But it's probably going to be corny because it's a Christian movie. When we were planning out the services and Phil saw my notes, he texted me and he says, you think we should sing this song as a closing song? I'm like, yes, that's actually the song I had in mind when I was planning out uh, this, this uh, sermon. It was written in the 1800s by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow during the Civil War. There was a time of deep, deep darkness as a nation and for the author in specific. His wife had 
Spoiler alert, if you're going to go see the movie, you can plug your ears. Uh, his wife had tragically passed away. His son, against his will, went and joined the Union Army. And he was fighting in the Civil War, and he was severely wounded around Christmas time. And Longfellow records his emotions as he's dealing with his son, probably going to die, his wife having passed away tragically, that the bells were ringing on Christmas Day saying there's peace on earth. And he's like, there's no peace here. This is darkness. And yet the bells kept ringing, even when everything was war and darkness. These are the two sides of Christmas. We see it in that powerful hymn, that Christmas is war between the light and the dark. God is not asleep. Christmas is the victory of God's peace invading a war-torn world. Christmas is war, yes, but Christ wins, and we win in him. Therefore, my encouragement to you as we sing this song and as you go throughout your Christmas season is that in this present darkness that you would sing about the light. You would sing praises. You would raise your broken voices and you would join the fight by looking to the light and ignoring the darkness, challenging it with praises to the one who came to this world, who died in our place and who is coming back where there will be no darkness in his kingdom. That is the story of Christmas. That is why we sing. That is why we light candles and decorate Christmas trees. Because the light of the world has come and the darkness cannot overcome him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your light. We thank you that we are not stuck blind in the darkness. That we are not stuck without a hope. Oh Lord, may you encourage our hearts and our minds. Give us strength as again we remind ourselves of these old truths. That the light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overcome him. Lord, may we never lose sight of that. And we ask that that light of the world will come once again and that he would come quickly and that we would see the coming of his kingdom in all of its glory and all of its unending light and that evil will be no more, death will be no more, and sin will be no more, for Christ is victorious. It's in his name we pray. Amen.